You're listening to a Wheels on the Ground production. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners. Andrew here. I want to tell you all about a really awesome deal that I got from my friends and new sponsors, Adam and Eve, the number one adult toy superstore. They reached out to me and they said, Andrew, we love Disability After Dark. We love your show. We love what you're doing. And we were wondering if you wanted to run some ads for us. And I was like, fuck yes, I do. But what are my awesome listeners going to get if I run ads for you? What are they going to get out of this? And they came back with a really fantastic deal that I want to share with you right now. I hope you're getting comfy, cozy, and crippled because this deal is pretty great. If you go to AdamEve.com, you can pick out almost any item in the store, almost any one item in the store, for 50% off. That means you can get one dildo, one lube, and one thing of lingerie, if you want, for 50% off. And then, once you get that one item for half price, they throw in even more free stuff. Let me tell you all about it. Okay, so you got your one item at half price in your bag, and you're ready to go, but guess what? This offer also includes 10 free items on top of that that other item. So you get one free item for penis havers, one free item for vulva havers, one free item for couples, and then you also get six free movies from the AdamEve.com website. You can get your favorite porn or an educational film. I love free movies. They're so awesome. This is such a great deal. And then, on top of that, you also get free shipping. What could be better? This is such a great offer. So, to redeem this great offer, what you're going to do is you're going to go to AdamEve.com. You're going to go to checkout, and you're going to type in DarkPod. That's D-A-R-K. P-O-D at checkout, and you're going to get one item, almost anything in the store, at 50% off, and then you're going to get those 10 free gifts, absolutely free, as part of your offer. This is such a great deal, and this is just for you, Disability After Dark listeners, and I hope you run over to AdamEve.com and take advantage of it right now. Content Warning The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. You're listening to Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories with your host, disability awareness consultant, Drew Gerza. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends. Thank you so much for clicking on this brand new episode of Disability After Dark. The podcast shining a bright light on disability stories. I'm, of course, your daddy, Drew Gerza. Thank you so much for listening. Get comfy, cozy, and crippled. And let's get this show started, everybody.
First things first, I want to give a big shout out to some of the people that help keep this show going and help keep this show supported. So let's do that right now. The first person I want to give a shout out is to my friend Victoria, who pledged one pound the other day, one pound towards the show, which is really cool. I've never had somebody pledge a pound before. That's really awesome, and it's really nice to know that we have international listeners and people from across the pond listening. That's super cool, and thank you so much for that. So, for your one pound pledge, you get a sexy pun, which is this, a sexy awkward pun, which is this, which will be, you are like my queen, Victoria, super awesome, and I wish there was more, yeah, there we go, there it is. So, thank you so much, Victoria, for your one pound pledge. That also means you get the show one day early, and you get a weird, awkward shout for me, which you just got, so thank you so much. If you are listening and you want to pledge to the show, you can pledge in any currency that works for you, in any amount that works for you, up to one, one, up to, up to one, or up to five, or as much as, as you want to, to help keep the show going, and that means you get the show one day early, and completely ad-free on our Patreon feed, so if you're able to, pledge at patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark. Of course, you can also just leave us a nice review, leave us a nice five stars, send me tweets and let me know why you like the show, tell your friends, all that stuff too works. But uh, thank you again, Victoria, for your pledge. If you're listening right now to this intro and you're like, why, why does Drew sound so tinny? It's because I put the, the back of the microphone to the front and I... I am not with my attendant right now, so I can't change it. So if I sound weird and a little bit like I'm not really close to you, that's why. Even though the mic is right in my face, it seems to be coming off kind of tinny. So the interview won't sound like that today, not to worry. But let's get to it today. I'm really excited. Also, did you love our new intro? I had that made up the other day. So super excited about that. Hope you liked it. Um, and I hope you like the more professional, sleek intro. All right, let's get started. One of the things I absolutely love doing with this show and all the other shows that kind of come on this feed is talking to people about disability and getting them to ask questions and really sitting with them and talking through some ableism and disability stuff. And so today, I got to sit down with one of my friends and colleagues in the sexuality space, Dr. Justin Lay Miller, who is a sex researcher. Um, and who's done some really cool stuff, who's written a book on the psychology of sex, has a podcast, the psychology of sex that I was recently a guest on, and I sat down with him today to really give him the opportunity to ask me, as a sex researcher, how do we make sex research more inclusive and more accessible? So we have a really fun conversation, and an important conversation about that, because I think so much of sex research is ableist, is exclusive to people with disabilities, and that's not fair. We need more disabled stories in this space, and so Justin and I talk about that. We talk about a whole lot more, actually, but it was really nice to sit down and give someone like Justin, a sex researcher, a chance to ask questions about disability, and I love being able to sit down with really important people in this field and give them a chance to ask really plainly what they don't know 
and try to find out answers together. So that's what this episode will be. I loved sitting down with him. It was so fun, so valuable. I'm really, really glad I got to do it, and I really, really hope that it provides some avenues for sex research to be more inclusive and more more open to talking about disability. So, without further ado, here's my interview with sex researcher Dr. Justin Lay Miller right now on a new episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories. Dr. Justin Lay Miller, hello. Hi, Andrew. Hi, it's so nice to have you on Disability After Dark. How are you today? Doing well, and I'm happy to be here. Such a pleasure. I was on your podcast just like, what, a couple of weeks ago now, like maybe a month. Yeah, and I really appreciate having you on because I think it was such a, you know, just a fun discussion about a topic that we just, you know, never really talk about. It's true. It's true. Well, I mean, that's why I kind of, I kind of love when you were like, "Sure, I'll do it." And then I was looking over your questions today, and, and so we're going to kind of have a, sort of a continuation of all the things we talked about on your <laughs> show. So you should go back and listen to my episode of your of of your podcast because it was really good. <laughs> and and now we're going to do more of that today. But but can you introduce yourself to the audience? Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. I am Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute. I have been studying the science of sex and teaching courses on human sexuality for more than a decade, and I've published a few books on the subject. I'm an active researcher in the area, and I do a lot of public speaking and writing uh, to educate the public about the science of sex. Awesome. Um, are you somebody... With because this is a sex and disability podcast, I have to ask: Are you somebody who who identifies as having a disability yourself? I don't personally identify. No. Okay. Cool. So, and I, I kind of already knew that, but I wanted to. <laughs> um, so, what I want to do today is I want to give you the chance, as somebody who works in the field, as a doctor who works in like sexuality, I wanted to give you the chance to sit down with me and just ask questions because I feel like so many people who work in the field as professionals have so many questions about disability and are not properly educated fully when they go through their, like, sex schooling about disability. There's so many gaps and so many, like, barriers to their understanding. So I love being able to sit down with sex educators who are not disabled and be like, cool, let's talk about all this. Um, so before we get into that, my first question for you is when you were doing your, like, schooling around sex and disability and learning all the – or sex – and learning all the things that you learned, how much, how much reference or discussion of disability was there in what you were taught? There was almost none. And, I mean, I should also clarify that when I was in graduate school getting my Ph.D. in social psychology, when I went into that, I didn't actually know that I was going to come out as a sex researcher and educator. That wasn't actually my goal going in. And I was really focused more on studying the science of romantic relationships. And so most of the courses that I took were on relationship-related topics, but there was just almost no discussion of sex at all, let alone, you know, a discussion of sex and disability. And my 
first real education on the subject was when I was assigned to be a teaching assistant for a human sexuality course while I was working on my doctorate. And that's the course that really opened up my eyes to this whole world of sex research that's out there. And, you know, thinking about the topic of disability in particular, you know, that was covered in that course and it was covered in the textbook, but just in a very minor way. And when they talked about... Yeah, when they talked about sex and disability, it was really limited primarily to just people with spinal cord injuries. And they talked a little bit about creating secondary erogenous zones as like, you know, how you find a way to, you know, develop. To rewire your brain to like get off again. Exactly. And that's really kind of like the extent to what I learned about this. And so I realized that, you know, there are a lot of gaps in my own knowledge, in part because there wasn't really much in the way of training opportunities for this. There's not a lot of research on it. The textbooks don't cover it extensively. Uh, And so when I went and wrote my own textbook a few years later on the psychology of human sexuality, I tried to uh, incorporate more of a focus on on disability issues, but I still realize it's inadequate in part because there's still such a lack of research on the topic. And, you know, I think also in part because there's so few researchers with lived experience to be like, let's talk about this. Like, I'm a sex educator, and I know a bunch of disabled sex educators who, who like, do it, like, like on social media or on Instagram and talk about all this stuff and have taken up the charge of, like, talking about this stuff. But then when we think about the barriers to, like, getting a, quote-unquote, higher education um, and how both financially draining that is when you live with a disability and then, like, all the academic ableism that would come with just trying to get into the door. Like, I, I did graduate school, too, and it was a shit show. I loved parts of it, and I really hated other parts of it because they didn't know how to manage somebody with a disability. So, like, so I think it's it's a real shame that there are so many people who want to do this work but can't get the credentials to sit to be, like, a proper researcher when they have all the lived experience right there. Absolutely. And there's another barrier to it as well, which is just that in general, there's so little funding available to do sexuality research. And, you know, in terms of being able to get grant funding to study these types of topics, there just aren't a lot of mechanisms available to do that. And so that leads sex researchers to focus more on the things that are fundable, like STD prevention, teen pregnancy prevention. And so we have a lot of research in those areas, but there's really very little just in the area of pleasure itself, and especially when in looking at pleasure in diverse populations. Oh, yeah. Pleasure is something that disabled people are often like denied from the conversation from the get-go. So I think that there needs, like, we need to fund grants that are, they can give a couple million dollars towards, like, let's talk about pleasure, let's talk about research, let's find out how disabled people are fucking so that we can make it better for them and, and better for their partners and so that they can be a part of this conversation so that when we look at sex research, a disabled person doesn't immediately go, oh, I guess I'm not included here. It's so true. And, you know, another thing that would really help would be, you know, as you mentioned, there aren't a lot of disabled persons in this field. And, you know, having research teams that incorporate uh, persons of diverse backgrounds, I think, is really important for being able to ensure that you're asking 
the right questions in the right way and getting the best possible data and that you're designing your studies in inclusive ways because we all approach our research, um, you know, we try to be as objective as possible and to, uh, you know, do the best work that we can, but we all have our own areas of, of bias from our own personal lived experience that, um, you know, can creep into the research that we do. Totally. And I think that like what I would say to the, to the people doing, looking for like researchers looking for lived experience, go on Instagram, go on Twitter, type in hashtag disability, hashtag sex, and surely somebody other than me will come up and be like, I want to talk about this. Let's talk about this. And like, with, there also needs to be funding for if you're if you're not gonna if you can't get a researcher with disabilities or chronic illness to do this, which is silly because you can't. But let's say you couldn't and you wanted to like bring on another person to like help you with this or hi, or like talk to somebody. You have to pay them. So like, if you're gonna talk to this, if you're gonna make a disabled person talk about their sex life, you gotta give them something other than like a like a twenty dollar Amazon card. They need they need grocery money for that week. So like, we need to find the funding for you know not only hiring of the researcher, but also any subjects that we're talking to. Give them you know give them a hundred bucks so that they can buy food that week. So that when they're giving you that really tough lived experience story about how sex is hard for them, they know that after they're done doing that, they can go to the grocery store and, or, you know, they can get whatever they want with the money you give them. Like, I always find it really troubling when I'm, when I see research grant, research, like, studies, it's like, oh yeah, come talk about this, and then you're like, okay. And so then the, the available thing is like, oh, here's 20 bucks. It's like, well, no, you want me to bear my soul to you? And I'm like, zero? What? No. <laughs> so there needs to be funding for that too, because I think the, I think these studies that are like being built on the on the backs of disabled people and, and marginalized groups shouldn't you you can't take all that good raw material and then and then not give something for it. Yeah, I mean I totally agree and I think there should be fair compensation for the the time and investment and, and everything that goes into all of this. And again it all comes back to there's just almost no funding mechanism set up to do this. And so what that does is it leads to this over-reliance on researchers studying cisgender, heterosexual, able-bodied, white college students, right? Because they're the easiest population to access and they can get them for free. And, um, you know, so, so much of our sex research is based on this very limited segment of the population that is not generalizable to the rest of the world. And that's, that's really problematic that that's where so much of our knowledge is coming from. And I like and appreciate that a lot of researchers are trying to take their work outside of college student subject pools and say collect data online, but they still don't have the funds to be able to pay participants, which is why you see the, you know, here's a, a gift card raffle that we can <laughs> offer. Yeah you know, just is totally inadequate in terms of, you know, some of these studies require a half hour or an hour or more time to participate. And so, you know, I would love to see some foundations set up that really want to support um, sexuality research on diverse populations because it's just so important to our knowledge base in this field. Totally. And I know that there is surely some philanthropists listening to this right now with millions of dollars. So if you want to do one or two things, you can go, you can support the podcast and give me a good chunk. And 
also give money to to this research because it's so valuable. But but you know because we're talking about questions today, we're talking about research. I thought it'd be really important, like I said at the beginning, if I gave you the chance as a researcher to ask me basically questions about sex and disability so that I can help to to grow your knowledge base and to maybe uncover some like ableist bias that you didn't know you had and all that kind of stuff because I think that's that that for me as a disability researcher is really fun to sit with able-bodied people and put them in the hot seat hot seat in the nicest way and be like oh that's that's <laughs> oh that's that's weird let's talk about that so with love and 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 like comfort but getting people to think about their ableist biases because they're there and nobody wants to ever confront them so I, I always come in and be like hey let's talk about how you're an ableist and that's okay but let's talk about it. So I wanted to give you a chance to ask me anything about sex and disability today, and uh, I open the floor to you. <laughs> well, thanks for the opportunity. I guess I'd start by asking the question of just sort of why do uh, people, not just in my field, but healthcare providers in general, psychologists in general, why do we need to open up conversations about sex and disability? You know, this is something that we almost never talk about, and so why why do we need to talk about it more? I mean, I think the biggest, and that's, such a, that's a question that I get all the time, and I think the biggest reason is that we've been taught through centuries of modeling and learning that being disabled is bad. Being disabled means you're sick. Being disabled means you have some kind of illness that's going to like hurt people and going to spread and going to do all these things. Like, look at Corona right now. Everyone is freaking out the minute we cough. And, like, and believe me, I am too. But it's like there's some ableism in there because it's like, okay, just because they're coughing doesn't mean they're less than. And even if they do something silly and get corona or whatever virus, it doesn't mean they're less of a person. And I feel like there's this long-standing belief that if you, if you get sick, you're weak. You're less than. You're not as important. And you're going to cause harm to the rest of the herd. So... Like, it's really, it's really, I feel like it's really primal and super biological when people see a sick person or, a, and so because disability and illness are so closely linked, I think our, our, you know, our primate brains kind of go, oh, I, I guess you're ill then, I'm going to go over here so that I don't get what you have. And then, you know, we're already taboo about sex just because of, you know, just because of our puritanical, like, histories we're all like oh my god it's so scary like, oh goodness so like when you put those two things together it's like a firebomb of like how do we do this and then if you were to add on top of that like the medical professionals or researchers like we you you know doing ethics stuff and things like that we've been taught that there's a, a boundary that you're not allowed to cross and if you cross that boundary you're in trouble and so with doctors it's like you you can't talk about sex because you're going to cross some sort of boundary that's, like, outside of, like, the medical, the you know, medical discussion. And if you're a researcher, you can't talk about sex because then, you know, the, the or you can't talk about sex and disability to your disabled subject because what if they get aroused and what if there's, like, something that, what if there's a, a line you cross? And then it, there's, there's so many reasons why I think we don't talk about it and we haven't been given a good on how to have those conversations respectfully. Yeah, no, I'm, I totally agree with everything you're saying. And, you know, I, I'm sitting here thinking about 
how being inclusive of uh, disabled persons and meeting their needs through the healthcare system is one thing, but another part is, you know, kind of going back to that research piece we were talking about earlier, you know, what is it that we as researchers need to do to, you know, better reflect the concerns of this community and, and address their needs through the work that we're doing? Because I'm primarily a researcher. Uh, I'm, I'm not a sex therapist, so I don't, you know, provide therapy. I'm, I'm more on the, the research and academic side of things. But I'm just wondering if there are things that maybe we could do in our research that, you know, even if we don't have, say, grant funding to do this, could make our work more accessible and inclusive. Like, for example, you know, I never see in routine studies that go out people asking about uh, disability status. And, you know, is that, like, some important first step to do, you know, just in our demographic information to be collecting this kind of data? What what, what do you think? Oh, I totally, I totally think that's important because people have hidden disabilities. People have chronic illnesses you can't see. People have emotional disabilities, like all this stuff. And I think just putting that on a questionnaire give somebody permission to be like, oh, I guess I can talk about this now. And if they check the box, yes, I have a disability or a chronic illness, then they feel safer to be more upfront about that reality. And I think just even if even if the study has nothing to do with the disability, putting that box there is like, okay, you thought about us. Like, it's a really simple thing, but it says to the community, you thought about us. You consider that this is a reality for us. It's like if like how we're doing we're doing a lot of this with trans and non-binary community right now in a lot of our research we're putting are you cis trans non-binary what are your pronouns what are your what's your gender presentation what do you like we're doing all that but when it comes to disability like there's none of that and the irony is that many of the people that are trans and non-binary and genderqueer and all those things also probably have some form of chronic illness or disability and if you look at those populations the populations of people that are trans and non-binary and genderqueer do tend to have huge comorbidities with, I can't remember the numbers, but they're really big comorbidities with disability. So there definitely should be a box for disability. Yeah, and I'm just, I'm thinking back to the way that I was trained to put demographic questionnaires together when I was in graduate school. And, you know, the main things we were taught to ask were age, race, uh, gender identity and um, sexual orientation. And it's kind of like those are the, the big four, and people don't ask a whole heck of a lot beyond that. If they do, they start looking at things like socioeconomic status and education level. But I'm really struggling to think of, you know, routine surveys I've seen where they, they ask about disability status at all. And I recognize that that's, uh, you know, something that I haven't done in my own history of research, in part because it's just not something that, uh, you know, I was trained to do or had the awareness to, to put that in. And so that's something that, uh, you know, I can do going forward is to make sure that my work is, is at least, at a bare minimum, is more inclusive in that way. And I mean, I think, and that's great, and if you want help with language, when you do those surveys, like, hit me out that I can guide you on what, how to properly phrase it. Because I think also when you, <laughs> if you just put, I have a disability, like, do you have a disability, that's so broad. Right. You need to put, like, are you a wheelchair user? Are you a power wheelchair user? Are you, can you walk? Like, there needs to be a whole section on how, what, like, 
how does your disability impact your sex life? And then, you know, answer these five questions, and then that will guide me, guide us into the next part of the survey to give us the best possible answer for you. So I think there's so much you can do with that. Yeah, and I think it's it's so important to consult with the communities on the best way to measure these things. Uh, you know, I'm thinking back to when I was in graduate school. You know, uh, on surveys, they still routinely just asked about gender. Do you identify as male or female? And that was it. Yeah. And, and now... You know, and, and now if you put that on a survey, like, everybody would be like, whoa, where's the, where are the five other options that you're supposed to have there? Right. <laughs> and so, you know, that's the thing. Like, there's no standard demographic measure that's inclusive and that, you know, where they work to get community uh, involvement and engagement. I'm thinking about what are the best ways to ask about all of these different important identities that people have in their lives. And so uh, it's... I think an urgent need in the field just for ensuring the the quality of our research going forward to ensure that we're not unintentionally offending our participants and to also ensure that um, minority and marginalized populations are visible in the work that we do. Like, and I've seen research from really prominent researchers, who I won't name because I don't want to like shame anybody, but I've seen really prominent research from researchers over the years where they'll be studying disabled people and sexuality and they'll be studying like disabled subjects, and I just sit there and go, well, it's cool that you got a subject, but why didn't you write a paper with, why why didn't you write this paper, like, alongside a disabled person who could guide you in the right language to use, who could guide you in, like, how how to phrase this, like, like, even if you can't pay them as a fellow researcher, pay them as a co-writer of your paper, so that when you present it to people, like, there's there's the framework for, for them to to be involved and they know that you're not just picking up the cool buzzwords and they're like, yeah, I said ableism, cool, but no, but you're like actually doing it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there is a lot of virtue signaling <laughs> that happens uh, in, in some of the research that, that people do where they want to, you know, show that they're that they care about a certain topic, but they're not really personally invested enough to make it the the high quality project that it needs to be, and so I think yeah. that's the yeah, that's the problem. And I just like I just think like I'm already like so. When are we writing a paper? Like what are we going to be on? <laughs> How do we do this? Because I feel like there's not, and I I think like that's why a part of why I moved away from academia. Why I, I did a I did a like a BA and an MA in legal studies and disability, and at the end of it, I was like, fuck, this is great information that I've compiled over the years, but like I don't. I want to take this to the people in the community. If I sit in a research, if I sit in like a university for the rest of my days doing this, no one's going to read my thesis. No one's going to read my article on how great disability is. I need to take it to like, and make it a practical thing. And so that's why I left academia because it's like, I can't, <laughs> I can't do it like no more. So learning to like, to, to bring it out and working with disabled people, I think would just change the game in terms of research. Yeah. And, you know, what you say about academic papers and their impact, it's it's so spot on because odds are when you publish a journal article, a handful of people will ever read it 
in part because it's usually locked behind a paywall at a journal, and so it's not accessible yeah. to anyone unless you have access to a university library. And then people also have to know about it in order to read it. And most researchers and academics don't have a big platform for being able to share their work. And so there's so much more that you can accomplish, for example, in your work as a public figure and speaker in this area. And if you can combine forces with researchers, then that provides the amplification needed to take what's published in a journal to really get it out there um, in, in a way that matters. Yeah, and I don't think, I just don't think we're doing that enough. And like, I know even for you and with what you do, being that you have like doctor next to your name, you have to be so careful about all the things you tweet because like of your research and what you're doing, you can't say, like, I feel like this today, whereas I have the luxury of like, if I wanted to do a tweet about something not at all related to my work, I can be like, hey, Beyonce's cool today. You're like, but, like you know, whatever I want to put, I can do that. But you as a researcher have to be so careful about the things you say on a public forum because because of what you do. And so I can imagine that's really stressful when you want to break free of all those reins and you're not able to. It is. And, you know, I want to ensure that the information and everything that I share is scientifically accurate and that it's not going to piss people off. You know, it needs careful wording to ensure that um, you're not going to get people to shut down before they can engage with your message. And so that's been something I've had to do over my decade plus career in this field is learn how to be an effective communicator about the science of sex to really diverse audiences. And one of the things that really helped me was that I worked at a few different universities that had pretty different student bases in terms of their political leanings. Like I started teaching human sexuality courses in Indiana, and then I moved to Colorado, and I was teaching in, in Boston uh, at, at Harvard uh, for a few years, and then uh, back to Indiana. And so, you know, by working with people just who are across the political spectrum, I found that I had to be very careful in the way that I frame and tailor all my messages. So every morning when I wake up, I spend literally an hour on social media scheduling my tweets for the day. And oh, yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, just making sure that everything you say is exactly the way it's supposed to sound and you didn't, like, you didn't say you didn't misspeak that or say that wrong or put that wrong word in there that's going to incite a, a, a Twitter war because nobody wants that. Like, it's, it's horrible. <laughs> Yep, and sometimes I still fuck up. You know, I, I do my best, but I'm always willing to learn. And I think that our language around sexuality is something that we have to recognize is always constantly evolving. And if you look at some of the, what I would call, uh, legacy textbooks in my fields, the ones that have been around for a really long time, yeah. you know, there's, there's not a lot of revision that happens in between editions, and some of the language in there is so outdated and so offensive to people. And I see this even in my own textbook that, you know, the most recent edition was published uh, at the end of 2017, but, you know, just three years later, the way that I would talk about a lot of these issues is so radically different. And so it's really hard for the, the scientific literature, the academic literature to keep up with um, public discourse and the way that we talk about these issues. And so that's, I think, a struggle in the field uh, is, you know, that constant evolution of language. I mean, I would say the same in terms of, like, disability language. I would say that it's so, a lot of the textbooks that we, and even, even the researchers who have done research on disabled people will, will use language like wheelchair bound or, like, confined to a wheelchair or, like, that person is 
a person with special needs and you're going, wait, it's 2020. Like, did you bother to, like, look at what the current lexicon is before you wrote this? Because none of that's correct anymore. Cause, like, so, but, and on, you know, the flip side of that as a disabled person, like, I always try to listen to what the person that is doing the research is saying. So if they said special needs, but they didn't mean it in a way that was, like, harmful, I would let them say it and then at the end be like, I know what you were saying, and I agree with you, but could we maybe tweak this language to say this, just so that the re- like, the researcher doesn't feel like they've done something with some horrible misstep, but they're also brought in to their to the discussion of ableism without feeling like I've shut them down. Because my like I could be like, oh my god, fuck you! I can't believe you said that word. How dare you? But that doesn't help anybody. Like, so I feel like just like you, what you were saying, how the language around sexuality research is really also really old. So is the language around disability. We're still saying handicapped. We're still saying um, person with special needs when we should be saying. We, we could just say disabled. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I'm also thinking of some of the older sex researchers in my field who, you know, I've heard them give talks and presentations, and there there is a lot of outdated language in the things that they say, and sometimes they get called out for it, but something I've seen is that oftentimes there's a reluctance for them to change their language, right? They want to dig their heels in and say, oh, these people are being too sensitive, and, like, they, they should know what I mean, and, and, and so then you end up in this, you know, toxic situation where, you know, no one is hearing anyone anymore and then everyone just ends up pissed off and I see that happen just way 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 too much in my field and beyond and I mean I try to do that with disability research too of like 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 if somebody is saying handicapable or like you know words that are just like I would so cringe I have a friend who does has been on the show before and who's done like who is an activist and they call themselves differently abled and they are they are they have, you know, conditions. And so they'll use the word differently. Well, I want to cringe, but I remember that they're not doing it to hurt me. That's their that's their requested language. So even though I would never use that word to describe myself or another disabled person, they said, this is what I want, and so I'm going to do it. And if I, as a researcher, got up in front of a podium and said, well, well I'm going to call you all this. Like, that doesn't, that's so gross. <laughs> It is, um, and unfortunately it happens sometimes. <laughs> so there's, there's work that needs to be done. To, so, to much work. Um, so much work. But we, we've talked a bit about research and kind of how that needs to change, but if we kind of go back to the you know, world of sex therapy and psychology and healthcare, um, you know, how do we need to change our educational models there? How do we need to change the way that people who are actual, like, frontline providers who are going to be dealing with diverse populations, like, how do we ensure that they have the right training they need so that they can meet the needs of the the different types of people who are going to show up in their office every day? We need them to confront the fact that they're ableist first. They need to learn what that word means. And if anybody who's listening who hasn't listened to the 200 some odd episodes of my show doesn't know what ableism is yet, just in case you don't know what it is. It's the discrimination against disabled people for being disabled. So the the providers need to learn what that is. They then need to be gently patted on the back and be like, guess what? You probably you probably contributed to ableist things in your practice and didn't even realize it. Let's review 
what you've done, and not in a way that shames them and is like, fuck you, you're an ableist, but is like, let's talk about that and let's talk about ways that you can fix this and bring in like disability consultants in your practice and be like, okay, I think I've done some pretty ableist things. I didn't realize. How do I fix this? Like, what do I do to make my practice better? Like, they, you know, we. Sh- I wish that we had more disabled therapists. I wish we had more disabled practitioners. We don't just because of all the barriers we spoke about earlier about like just trying to go to school is really inaccessible to a lot of people. So that's why we don't. But like, if you have the money, doctors and men healthcare pr- practitioners to hire disabled people to guide you in this way, like you should. And I just don't think we're doing that enough because, like, just in terms of, like, the doctor's office generally, so many of them are inaccessible. And why? It's like, well, how are you going to help someone if they roll into your office and they're in a wheelchair and they need to get out of the chair so you can do an anal swab to see if they have an STD? How are you going to do that? When I went to go see my doctor for that exact thing, she was, uh, I remember sitting there saying, okay, I want a full STD panel today, please. And she goes, oh, well, you didn't uh, you didn't receive anal sex, did you? And I went, well, not this time. And she goes, oh, good, because if you did, it would be super hard to get you out of your wheelchair. And I was like, cool, but you're the doctor. And I said to her, like, at one point in my life, I will do that, and I will come to you and say I've done that. What are you going to do? If I needed, and she was like, well, we'll figure that out when it happens. I was like, but that's not, you should have a plan in place. So I just think that overall, these, whether you're a, whether you're a researcher, whether you're like a medical doctor, all of these spaces need a disability overhaul. But the first place we do that is in the minds of our practitioners and getting them to see that they're, they have contributed to a system of ableism, just like racism is a system of, of, codes and things that we've done that we didn't realize we were doing, so it was ableism, and I don't think it's, I don't think ableism is a bad thing, I think it's something that we, all of us need to work on. Yeah, and I love what you say about, you know, the way that we sort of frame this and how, like you said, just because you do something or say something that's ableist, it doesn't mean that you were inherently a bad person, that you're evil and terrible, and I think this happens a lot where when people say things that are ableist or homophobic or uh, racist, we assume the automatic absolute worst in that individual. And rather than, you know, treating it as a potential learning opportunity, we infer that there's malice behind it. And when we take that approach, it, it, it ends up creating this resistance, this reluctance on the other side to engage with what it is that you're actually saying and it doesn't lead to the type of change that we desperately need to have and so I think the ways in which we deal with uh, all of the isms you know we, we, we need to change that so that the message actually gets through so that people can realize ways in which they do uh, need to change way in which they've contributed to, to different systems of oppression that exist and it's hard to do that um, I've you know, I've been fortunate to have the opportunity where one of the main courses I've taught in my uh, college career is the psychology of, of prejudice and oppression. And so every day in that course is a difficult conversation about a topic that people have never really spent much time talking about before. And it's talking about ableism, talking about uh, heterosexism and sexism and racism and, and all of these different forms of bias. And 
I frequently would have students who would say things that, um, you know, <laughs> do reflect one of those isms, but rather than calling them out and telling them they're a terrible person, we take it as an opportunity to learn and discuss. And we have really productive conversations in that course where students come out of it as, as changed people. But the unfortunate reality is that, you know, it's only a very small number of people who ever come into my classroom where we have the opportunity to do this. So how do we replicate that on a much larger scale that's needed? And that's where the challenge is. I mean, I, and I totally agree with you. And I think, you know, I just saw a thing recently on YouTube. You know, I don't know who the guy's name is, but he's a black man. And he started this YouTube channel called, like, Uncomfortable Conversations About Blackness or whatever. And I found it the other day, and I haven't watched it yet, but I was like, this is the greatest thing that I've ever seen in my whole life. Because he has a bunch of, like, him, the black man, and a bunch of white people, like, around him in a circle, being like, okay, we're going to talk about, like, racism and how you're racist and I just thought this is and he's got like celebrities like Chelsea Handler is one of his guests like that's fucking awesome that's really cool I think we need to bring these conversations into the public sphere and that's what I try to do on, on my social media and on the stuff that I do is to really talk about it but not in a way that's like fuck you you're an ableist because I did that game for a long time as a disability activist I played the angry disabled guy and I'm still pretty pissed off about a lot of stuff but if I yell and shout at you like, if you came on today and said an ableist thing to me, and I was like, oh, my God, Dr. Lee Miller, you're the worst person in the whole world. Get off here. Fuck you. What, how would I be teaching you that? At what point am I going to give you, like, how is that going to make you want to engage with me anymore? It's not. You're going to be like, oh, well, Andrew said I'm the worst, so I guess I'm the worst. Yeah, and, you know, I'm thinking about this through the lens of my social psychological training and how we're all motivated to want to see ourselves as good people. And so when somebody confronts us in that way and tells us we're a terrible person, you know, we are very reluctant to accept that view. And we have a, a tendency to think back to, you know, times when we did things that were positive or inclusive and how we have good motives and that's not what we intended. And so we can come up with all of these rationalizations and justifications for why that other person is wrong, the one who called us out, and then we totally discount everything that they said and then that yeah. reinforces our worldview. And so we need to work around that that social psychology. And I think, you know, to bring it back to like to my experiences in like disability activism, I see a lot of disabled people who will take almost this perverse joy in cutting someone down on social media if they've done an ableist thing. And I get where that comes from. I totally understand it. Like, I get why you're pissed off, and it's really easy to fire off that tweet. But, like, what are you doing at the end of it? Sure, you're going to get a bunch of likes, and sure, that's great, but are you helping to move the needle along? Like, you want to stop the suppression? You need to, unfortunately... You, you might need to engage with the oppressor in a way that makes them feel supported. Like, I'm not saying hug the Trump supporter. I'm saying, like, if somebody genuinely doesn't know and genuinely needs to be, like, guided, yeah, I think it's such a cool opportunity to guide somebody. And I, I, I take pride in that, of being able to use my platform. Not, as a, not, not to say that it's my responsibility as a disabled person, but to say that it's my opportunity as a disabled person to guide mm -hmm. you. Oh, I think what you're saying is so interesting in light of what I see a lot of my friends on social media say who are members of different 
minority groups who say that it's not my job to educate you and you need to go do the work yourself. And I hear people say this on issues relating to homophobia, to racism, to um, I've also heard it in the context of ableism as well. And so, uh, you know, what do, what do you say to that, to people who say it's not my job to educate you, go do the work yourself? I would say, you know, what I just said, which is it's, it's not my, it isn't, you're right, it's not my job. But imagine if what I said, if I, if I chose to guide you with love and support, and in doing that, I changed your worldview, that ableism you have, once I explained it to you, that ableism wouldn't go away overnight, but it would start to, the seeds of like, oh, I didn't get that, but now I get it, would start to shift. And if I can do that, just through conversation and through the, the willingness to meet you where you are, that's fucking cool. That's great. Like, that's a superpower. That's awesome. So I would, and like, the, the discussion of, oh, go do it yourself. Okay, Google is not right all the time. We know this. So why would I want somebody Googling my, and I used to say this on my social media all the time, oh, if you're going to date me or you want to suck my dick or you want to be my lover, like, go on Google and find out what my disability is. Like, don't ask me what my disability is. Go figure it out. So that, that happened once, and I had I had somebody that I was gonna mess around with. I met him on Grinder. We we're gonna mess around. We're we're all we're like we talked for hours and hours on Grinder. It was really good. We we're gonna like do it the next night or the next week or something. And he says to me, "So what do you have?" And I said, "Well, I have cerebral palsy." And he goes, "Oh, what's that?" And I was like, oh, "Just Google it. Like I don't want to tell you. Just go Google it." And so he googled it, and he comes back and he goes. I read that people like you can't speak and have seizures and drool everywhere, so I don't think we can go on a date. And I was like, okay, did you do a perfunctory Google search? She's like, yeah, I just clicked on what was there, and I was like, okay. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, that's partially correct, but also now you're being able to see people who do have, like, like speech things and do have, like, impairments where they drool and do have... Like, and do have seizures, and I was like, that's kind of weird, and like, I don't like that, but also, like, had you just talked to me, I would have told you how my disability Im- impacts me, and then we, you could have decided what thing we want to do from there. So, like, I don't think that Google, and I don't think that go research it yourself is a good answer anymore, because where are you getting this research? Where are you finding the sources to figure out what you think is true? When if you just talk to the disabled person, they can then decide if they want to teach you. So if you came up to me and said, Andrew, I have a question about your genitals, I could say, like, cool, thank you for your question. appreciate that. I don't have the energy right now to, to, to talk to you about my genitals. I mean, I always do, but, like, <laughs> but, but I could say, like, I don't have the energy right now. Thanks so much for your question. And I, as a disabled person, can decide, like, is this a comfortable topic for me? And if I say yes, then I can talk to you about whatever it is we're talking about, in this case, my genitals. But, like, do they work? You know, I can give you that, that overview if I, if I decide it's comfortable for me. But I, I know then that you're not getting it from some untapped source. That I don't know where you got it from. You just clicked on Google and there you go. Like, at least this way, you're hearing it from an actual live disabled person. Yeah, and that is fundamentally my concern with uh, telling people to educate themselves is that there's a lot of shitty information out there. Yeah. Uh, 
about a lot of different things. And how do you know that somebody's going to actually find the right information uh, for, for one thing? And, and also, will they even follow through with it uh, when you tell them uh, uh, to educate themselves? Now, I'm not saying that, you know, everybody who has a minority identity who hears some uh, racist, uh, homophobic, ableist shit, that they have to do the emotionally exhausting work of sitting there and no, not the education, right? I'm, I'm not saying that at all. And, um, you know, I'm someone with a minority sexual identity. I identify as a gay man, and I hear people say homophobic things frequently. I've heard this for, for my whole life. And, you know, my, my approach could always be to just, um, you know, shut down and totally disengage. But, I mean, I think, at least for me, my career has been one of an educator. And so I try to take those opportunities to try and help people to learn. And yeah, it's emotionally exhausting sometimes. There are also some situations where I realize, hey, I don't think there's any benefit to be had <laughs> in yeah. trying to work through this because some people um, just may not be teachable. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I mean... I just say this because I think there are so many important conversations we need to be having that aren't being had and that many of us have a tendency to just automatically assume in for the worst than others and that it's just increasingly leading us to a, a very bad place where nobody's talking and then we have a lot of issues that never get addressed and it just, you know, it saddens me <laughs> in the worst I mean, it, and I agree with you. I think that, that cancel culture in these spaces, in sexuality and in, in disability and in racism and in ableism and all, like, I think if I cancel everybody who didn't able to think to me, how would I have a job? How would I have, how would I be the educator that I am? I wouldn't. If I shut down every single disabled person who's like, or every single able-bodied person who said something out of turn, said something ableist they didn't realize, made an ableist joke but didn't mean to, like, I now kind of have adapted that to like listen to exactly what they're saying listen to the cadence of their voice if i detect any malice in their voice like oh that guy's whatever then then okay then i'll stop you and be like yo i didn't like that can we talk about how that was wrong but if they're just talking and want to and want to learn and don't know any better and i and also if i give a shit about this person if they're my friend and i see them trying i'm not going to be like oh you're an ableist like that doesn't that's not helpful and I think we need to in our culture especially this year where we've all been away from each other but we're all really close to our keyboards now people are feeling the the freedom to say whatever the hell they want without thinking of like the the consequences of that and that also extends to to ableism discussions so if somebody says something ableist you can just do a tweet that's like oh they said an ableist thing they're a fucking asshole like okay Sure, maybe they were, but you could have also you could have also lost a friend or lost a chance to connect. And why would you do that? Yeah, and that's the approach that I take in my personal life and also in the work that I do. Um, I think you know my work as a science communicator. I have to be willing to speak to pretty much any audience. You know, I go on right wing shows, left wing shows. Uh, libertarian shows, you know, I'm, I'm all over the board in terms of the interviews that I do and the outlets where I speak about sexuality-related issues because I think, um, you know, sex is really the great 
equalizer among people and that almost all of us do it and almost all of us have no idea what the fuck we're doing. And so I would agree uh, with that 100%. So, so I need to, to talk to diverse audiences. I need to be able to talk to everyone. And if I uh, say that certain groups are totally off limits for me to speak to because um, I disagree with them ideologically, then there's never a chance for me to change their minds in any way. And um, I feel like that's a lot of missed opportunity. So I know those Boy, <laughs> some of the interviews and conversations I've had are very difficult, but fortunately I've had a bit of practice and um, I've, I've figured out how to get through them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I've done it too, so they're just like really tough where you're like, oh. But I mean, most of the times when I've been confronted with ableism, it's, it's in this really like sweet, well-meaning way that you're like, I can't scream at you because that would be A, inappropriate, and B, I know you're not really trying to hurt me here, so let me guide you. Like, especially gay men, they don't know any better. They have a huge ableism problem in the queer community, but they don't know any better. So, like, I've been to clubs, and I've had, like, all these... I've had either people don't talk to me in the club, or they'll crowd around me and be like, wow, good for you for coming out. And it's like, oh, no, you're being equally, like, problematic, but at least you're trying. So like I, And also, if I'm at a club and I want to get down with you, even, even if you're being an ableist, like, can I overlook this ableism to sleep with you right now or like you know so so I think you know I have been in really tough situations where I've wanted to like shut down but I also I also see the value in teaching and I mean I'm, a, I'm an educator at heart so I love being like well let's talk about this let's like wade into the hard stuff together and see if we can come to an agreement or at least I can teach you something yeah and I think you know the situation you described about clubs and bars exemplifies the, the same issue that a lot of the healthcare providers and others have when it comes to uh, treating clients with disabilities is that they've never seen it before, they've never thought about it before, and so as a result, they haven't taken any steps to try and make their practice more in inclusive. And I think a lot of them tend to call it good and say, well, we've addressed the ADA required accommodations that we need. So you know, we put in a ramp so people can get into the office. And you know, we did the bare minimum that needed to happen, but we didn't think about anything that should have happened beyond that. And it's oftentimes just not until somebody encounters the situation in person that they realize all of the things that they've missed and have never thought of before. And, you know, I've had that experience before where I've been in uh, bars and clubs with uh, friends of mine who have disabilities. And, you know, it's something that for me, I had never personally thought of, like, what are the different ways that we can make this atmosphere, this environment accessible? Um, you know, it, 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 those are situations where it's just, okay, that calls out my own bias where I've never thought about this until I was actually in a situation where I saw all the, you know, struggles and difficulties and challenges, like where maybe the bathroom is located on another floor that's only accessible by stairs and my friend is in a wheelchair. And so how, how do we manage this situation and how could they have designed this place in the first place without taking that into account? So, you know, I think so much of it is just 
these, indivi- these issues are invisible to us until we actually encounter the situation in person. And then that's when people start to take action and make change, but it's just, it's a little bit late. You know? Well, the irony is that all those like Saturday night muscle queens who before Corona were partying and who shouldn't be right now. And if you're listening to this on a weekday and you went to a party this last weekend, for shame, it's Corona, stay home. But it, <laughs> for all those people that are, that were like partying uh, at the clubs, they're going to be disabled one day. They're going to be either wheelchair user, they're going to have something happen to them by old age, they're going to, you know, something will occur to them where disability and illness will, it's, it's coming for you. And for like, and not to be like scary, but it is coming for you. So why are we not talking about this stuff now? Because all those like muscle queens are going to want to suck dick when they're in a wheelchair still too. So shouldn't we make it accessible for them? Yeah. Sexuality doesn't disappear with age or with disability. And, you know, sex and aging is a whole other issue that I, you know, like to spend a lot of time talking about these days because we're all going to be old someday too. And, you know, our health status, ability status, that's all going to vary. But most older adults are still sexually active. They're masturbating and having sex, but there are unique things about, you know, how sex works and how it feels and, and all of that at these different stages of life. And so the more that we prepare now, the better served we'll be later. And, you know, one piece of advice I often like to give people is that, you know, it's really important to expand your definition of sex now while you're younger because what feels good to you, what's pleasurable to you, what you want and enjoy is likely to change over time. And in fact, you know, there's research showing that older adults who cling on to a more restricted view of sex where they just say sex is only penis and vagina intercourse, they're a lot less sexually satisfied. They have a lot more sexual difficulties, relationship difficulties later on, whereas those who take a more expansive view and and think about pleasure more broadly tend to be much happier. And so I think that that could serve all of us well when it comes to these conversations about uh, disability and aging and sex is the more flexible and adaptable you can become early on, the better you'll be for whatever comes your way in life. Yeah, and the more flexible you can be in your in your brain so that when your body is not as flexible, you can do different things and it's totally fine. Exactly. <laughs> so what else do you want to talk about? I mean... Um, there was something that... I, I was looking at the questions and there was something that, that for sure you had said that I was like, oh yeah, this, let me just... Uh, you wanted to talk about issues of consent around intellectual disabilities? Ah, yes. Um, that's a topic that I always find to be really interesting, and I, I try to make it a point every time I teach a human sexuality course to do a whole uh, discussion on this, because when it comes to sexuality of persons with intellectual disabilities, you know, there's this tendency to totally deny it and say, well, if you have an intellectual disability, you can't consent to sex, therefore you can't have sex. And um, so, you know, I think the question is really, how should we be thinking about this instead? And this issue of consent and intellectual disabilities, at what point can a person truly not consent to sex because of an intellectual disability? And who gets to determine that? Like, whose job is it to to decide these things? How do we, yeah. That's a great question. And one that I kept coming back to when I was like 
prepping for today, being like, I don't know if I'm going to answer this question if you ask me. I don't know. So, like, I, I still don't know because I think, you know, I don't deal with with an intellectual disability myself. And I am not a doctor and I'm not, like, schooled in that part of things. So I, like, from my lived experience as a disabled person, I would say the issue of consent needs to start early when we deal with disabled people generally, whether we're talking about intellectual disabilities or not. Because typically when you're a young disabled person, you're touched automatically by healthcare providers, doctors, your parents, personal care aides. But nobody asks you if you're okay with that. They just touch you. So you learn from a very young age that you're allowed to be touched by other people. And it's okay if they touch you. You're never, but you're never asked, does it feel good? So we need to start at like, hey, Johnny, you're five years old and the doctor's about to do an exam on you in your wheelchair or the like, orthopedic surgeon's going to do a thing on you in your chair. Before he starts, he should say, hey, is it all right if I touch you here? How does that feel for you? Like, get the young disabled person to learn about consent, even if they have an intellectual disability, so that when they, when they mature enough to have sex, they know a little bit about what it is, whether or not you're using clinical language like consent. Maybe you're just using yes and no. Maybe you're using what feels good. Maybe you're giving them you're giving them a framework to allow them to explore themselves. And I don't think, and I'm going to be very cautious when I say this, I don't think that that no one with an intellectual disability can have sex. And I don't think that, I don't know if I worded that right. What I mean is that I don't think Anybody can't have sex. I think the way we talk about sex with each person has to be tailored to them. It has to be tailored to what their needs are. So just overarchingly saying, oh, yeah, here's, here's an example of how you can make sex for intellectually disabled people great. I feel like that's really hard to do because everybody with a disability is different. Like my friend in a wheelchair who has the same disability as I have has totally different needs than I do. So to say, oh yeah, here's an overarching guide for intellectually disabled people to have sex feels almost like unfair because how do you do that? So I think it does have to be with like a case by case, like each person with an intellectual disability needs to be worked with, with a disabled like therapist, maybe a, a surrogate, maybe like some, some of those things as they get older to be like, how does it feel? Even if it's not sex, even if it's just like let's talk about touch first for a couple of sessions instead of let's have sex or let's like therapize your sexuality. Yeah. I think part of the issue and problem is that we have a tendency to put all intellectual disabilities in the same bucket and they're all different. Uh, different people have different levels of comprehension of sexual risk. And so it does need to be something that is approached on a case-by-case basis and how we navigate this. But I also, you know, see the other side of it, which is that there are a lot of people with intellectual disabilities who are sexually assaulted and they're taken advantage of by others. And so how do you protect them um, while also still recognizing their sexuality? And, and so I think the issue is that there's this overprotection that happens that results in a denial of sexuality for anyone with an intellectual disability. And it's just an uncomfortable, uncomfortable topic that no one wants to talk about. It's 
it is really, you know, even for me as a as a non-intellectually disabled person, it is uncomfortable because I don't want to say the wrong thing and I don't want to, like, wade into areas where I don't, know, I don't know anything about. But at the same time, I'm glad we're talking about it because we should be. And I think, you know, we should be sitting down with parents of, of intellectually disabled people or or care teams and being like, yeah, Johnny wants to get off? Great, let's find a way to help him do that. Johnny wants some pleasure? Great. Like, Johnny and Jill want to have a baby? Cool. Let's talk about that. How do we make... How can that happen safely? If not, what are the other alternatives for them to enjoy pleasure? Like, when we talk about consent, risk, and disability, what tends to happen is we only focus on the risk. We only... We shine a big, glaring spotlight on all of the problems for sex, but nobody goes back to... Hey, that felt good. Let's talk about that. Yeah. We need to do way more of that than we are. You know, when you were on my podcast about a month ago, I had uh, a parent reach out to me afterwards who says, who said that, you know, I have a son with an intellectual disability and I had never thought about these issues surrounding sexuality before. And so I'm really glad that we addressed it at least briefly in the last podcast because, you know, these conversations do open up conversations for other people to have and shine a light on issues that parents and caregivers and others may have never thought about before. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's an uncomfortable topic, and I don't know what the answers are. I'm the first yeah, I have no idea either. I'm, like, I don't know what, I don't, I'm not sure what they are, but I think they start with conversation, and they start with sitting in that discomfort, no matter who you are. Because I'm disabled, and even I'm like, oh, God, I don't know how to answer these questions, but it's good that they're there because it means we have work to do, and it means we need to be hiring people with intellectual disabilities to be like to to give us their lived experience models so we can then take those and put them in the research or put them in not even the research put them on twitter put them on instagram put these stories where people will actually access them after and be like oh i never thought of that but now i do like that's what we need yeah and and we also need to do exercises with people to challenge them and get them to think differently. Like one of the things that I do in my human sexuality course is I will ask my students what they think. You know, should persons with intellectual disabilities be able to have sex? And they pretty routinely, uniformly say no because they can't consent. But then I tell them this story about this elderly couple where um, uh, it was a male-female couple and the woman uh, developed Alzheimer's disease and um, they continued to have a sex life, but her husband was arrested and charged with sexual assault um, because they deemed her unable to consent to sex. And my students will look at that situation and say, oh, that's terrible, that's awful. Um, but, and, and, but, you know, dementia, Alzheimer's disease, that is an intellectual disability, right? Yeah. Uh, and so it's like, okay, so we can look at this situation and say, well, why do we think it's okay for them to, to have a sexual relationship but not for persons with these other intellectual disabilities? And that's where it can be a useful springboard for conversation about how do we think about this differently? Yeah, and I would agree with you. And I think just thinking about that story, the, what, the big thing that I keep coming back to is when she got dementia, something happened to her. So she went from being quote-unquote normal to being some sort of alien 
human that and some horrible tragic thing happened to her. So that's why they feel bad. That's why their immediate response is, Oh my god, that's horrible. But if you said John was born with Down syndrome and he wants to go sleep with his partner who also has Down syndrome, all of a sudden they're like, What that's how could you how could you let these people do that? That's so like not the answer. And the same thing happens when we're talking about just physically disabled people. If somebody was in an accident and got a spinal cord injury, the love and support for them regaining their sexuality is like, oh, yeah, you totally should get the dab, that, yeah. But then if I roll up and say, yo, I was born with CP and I like to get my dick sucked, people are like, oh, well, that's weird. So I think there's a huge discussion to be had of, like, there's a switch. If something happens to you where it gets taken away from you, then it's okay. But if you just are inherently this way, it's a problem. Yeah, and I think that that's true from a social psychological perspective, that if you can engage in perspective taking and empathy and really put yourself in somebody else's shoes, you can kind of understand that. And so with a situation where, hey, Alzheimer's disease, dementia, you know, this could happen to anybody. Um, and maybe I've seen it happen to, you know, other people in my life, like they can relate to that and process it differently than something that you're born with that they just can't comprehend at all. Yeah, and I feel like I feel like it's a real shame that we put so much weight on something being taken away from you and then like applying this pitiable sad story to it because guess what? That's ableism too. Like that that stuff has to stop because somebody with an intellectual disability deserves the same opportunities to fuck up like I do when it comes to dating and sex and relationships. They deserve the chance to try all those things too. And to take that away from somebody or to feel differently if they were inherently born that way is just wrong. Yeah. And, you know, so, so intellectual disabilities and sex, it, it's a big controversy in my field Different people have different views on it, but most people, no matter what their views are, they don't really talk about it. So it's just kind of one of those issues that gets relegated to the sidelines. But another really controversial issue in my field and in the field of sex therapy is centering around the issue of sex surrogacy for uh, disabled persons. And, you know, for people who aren't familiar, a sex surrogate is essentially a... Um, a sexual partner who is kind of an educator and guide for somebody who is, uh, you know, hired to uh, help somebody deal with a sexual issue. So, for example, um, a sex surrogate uh, might be hired to help a, a man who has some erectile difficulties. Uh, sometimes it, they're hired for people who have social skills deficits and it's sort of figuring out appropriate sexual and romantic interaction. Uh, sometimes they're hired for women who have vaginismus, which is a, uh, a painful involuntary contraction of the, the muscles surrounding the vagina that makes intercourse impossible. And so there's actually research showing that people who hire sex sur surrogates who are these sort of like trained guides to give you hands-on 
experience with sex and teach you things um, that they can help people to overcome a lot of the, the sexual difficulties that they've been experiencing. And But this is super controversial in the field because they say, well, that sounds unethical because you shouldn't be paying somebody to have sex with you. It sounds like prostitution and that's illegal. And, and so... Um, I don't know. Do you have any? <laughs> oh, I have thoughts. Don't worry. I had a whole framework as you were talking. Okay. okay. So I, I, as all my listeners know, I hire sex workers to have my needs met. Not right now because Corona is real. But for years, well, for three and a half years now, I've been hiring one key sex worker to have my needs met. And it's changed my life for the better. And they're not a sex surrogate. They're a sex worker. So completely different. They're not therapizing me, they're not, it's not, there's nothing therapeutic about it, and I personally would prefer a sex worker over a sex surrogate, because I don't want to, sometimes I don't want to learn skills to be better ex, I want to just fuck, and I want to go from there, and I want to do that with somebody that I trust, and so I think, first of all, I think paying for sex should be funded by all the governments everywhere, because it's a great resource for disabled people who maybe don't have the time or the energy to be in a relationship with somebody or who would lose their benefits if they were to move in with somebody. Like if you're if you're, you're going to get married in the U.S. or Canada or Great Britain and you want to move in with a partner, you can't because you'll lose your disability benefits. So you can't have quote-unquote normal relationships. Um, so sex work is a great option if like once or twice a month you want to have great sex with someone who you trust why couldn't you pay for it? And so I think that my only issue with sex surrogacy as a disabled person is like, I don't want every time I get naked with this person for it to be a therapy session. Mm -hmm. I, sometimes I would want to just fuck and I want to just be slutty and I want to just have fun and like take a big dick. Like, like <laughs> That's what I want to do. And I wouldn't want it to be like written down in the record notes that, like, Andrew sucked a dick today at 3.42 p.m. Like, like I'd want it to be really, you know, fun. And so for me, sex work is much more palatable. Um, and also then I can decide with the worker, like, you know, the times, and we can have a – we can build a friendship and a relationship that's more organic than if I know that the therapist at the other end. Um, but I think this, this discomfort around paying for it needs to – is really – harmful because I've been paying for over the last three years for like great sex with a great worker who has become a friend and we've we have this awesome relationship where we yes I pay him but yes we we talk and we hang out and we like do all the things you would do in a non-paid relationship but I don't have to call him boyfriend at the end I can say thanks for those three hours see you later bye like and he can go back to his life and it's great and I think it's provided me as a disabled man, my sex life back. So I constantly am advocating for sex work and sex surrogacy, both of those things, to be funded by governments everywhere. And one other thing I would mention with sex surrogacy specifically to uh, clients with disabilities is that sometimes the work that they might do might be about exploring their sexuality for the very first time. And uh, I'm thinking about the film, The Sessions, uh, that Helen Hunt was in a few years ago. such problems with that film, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's based on a true story. And so um, 
you know, yes, like any <laughs> dramatized account, you know, yes, there, there, there's always issues. But, um, you know, I often point to that as one example of uh, just kind of how sometimes it's about kind of exploring sexuality for disabled persons that they've been denied for their whole lives. And so sometimes that's like a useful first step is to have somebody who can walk you through like how you might experience pleasure with your body and your disability. And, you know, these are things that just no one has ever taught how to do. And so what are the other avenues and opportunities to do that? You know, the, the options are kind of limited. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think we also need to be really cognizant of the fact that if you're working with a sex surrogate or a sex worker, like, they're not a savior. Like, we need to stop doing stories on how great the sex worker is and doing more stories on the relationship between the sex worker and the disabled client because that's what's important. And, like, what is... I see these stories all the time when able-bodied sex workers or sex surrogates, like, start doing this work. The person the surrogate or the, the worker will be given all this profile. Oh. Okay, Google, I did not ask you to speak. Um, you know, the, the sex... Okay. Um, <laughs> apparently everything in my house is talking to me right now. Um, what was I saying? Yeah, so I see a lot of the surrogates or the sex workers be elevated to this, like, hero status and it's like no no no, no they're, they're, they, they are great people yes and it's amazing what they're doing yes but they're not somehow better because they're doing it I feel like we need to if we're going to talk about sex work and disability and sex surrogacy and disability we need to approach both the disabled client and the able-bodied worker sometimes the worker's also disabled so that too and be like how does this feel for both of you let's have that conversation yeah, and I'm. This is why I like talking to you because you can frame things in a different way that I hadn't thought about before. In the way that you know the the surrogates and and uh, sex workers are sometimes elevated, and maybe that's not what we should really be focusing on there. Maybe that's not the important issue. And like so, I mean, you know, with Cheryl Pong Green, we know we know her name because of the work she's done and because of the sessions. But do we know? Any of the other clients that she work with? No. Partially because that's because of privacy, I get that. But also, imagine if they were like exposés on the people that she slept with and what it felt like for them. That would, that would change the game. And I feel like when I have sex with my sex worker, like, I thank him and it's great and we're super playful. But I'm not like, oh, you're my savior. Like, thank you for that great sexual moment. I'm like, thanks for that fuck. I'll see you in two weeks. Bye. Like, we're, n we're not, you know, we're not, it isn't. I don't turn him into this angelic figure, and he he was me neither. But I'll, you know, I respect him and I care about him, and it's great. But I don't think he's an angel for doing it. Yeah, and you know something else related to this that I would mention is that you know the way that we view uh, sex surrogacy, sex work, and their intersection with disability. Uh, we talked about this a bit on my podcast. It does differ to some degree cross culturally. Like in the U.S., this is an extraordinarily controversial topic because there's this cultural belief that you should not pay for sex and that sex work is of any form is inherently victimizing in some way. But when you look at other cultures, you know, they view sex work very differently and yeah. that, that it's not inherently victimizing and that, um, you know, there are 
are uh, benefits that can come out of it for everyone who's involved. And, you know, if, if you look at the Netherlands in particular, where I've taught study abroad courses on sex and culture, um, in the Netherlands, that you can get government subsidies to hire sex workers uh, and, and people with uh, physical and intellectual disabilities often get those subsidies to pay for visits with sex workers. And it's in part because sex is seen as... Uh, our sexuality is kind of seen as this fundamental right that everyone has a right to pleasure and that sex is good for us, right? And so that having that cultural view makes it easier for them to say, hey, you can provide these government subsidies for sex, but in a place like the U.S. where we say sex is bad, you shouldn't do it, you're going to get a disease and die, you know, it's, yeah. like, it's a different ballgame. And I would love it if Canada and the U.S., because in Canada you can be a sex worker, but you can't pay for sex. So everything that I do with my sex worker is like hush hush. And you know, if anybody if anybody official was to ask me about it, I would say like, oh no, we're just friends, and I'm just paying for we're just spending time together. I don't know what you're talking about, like hush hush, because like, but it's so silly because yeah, I just paid him money for sex, but I didn't just pay for sex. I paid for intimacy. I paid to to hang out with him, to laugh, to be to feel whole, like. There's so many parts of my day as a disabled person where I don't get to, like today, for instance, I had, I've had four people touch my genitals today, who had to wear gloves and a hazmat suit and all these things for like, to help me do this stuff, which is fine and I accept that. But like, when he's there, and I get those two hours twice a month, I get to be totally free of all those restrictions, and I get to do to be super sexy and slutty and whatever. So it's so much more than just an act. You're paying for an experience and you're paying for... And now that I've spent three years with this person, like we are so close that when he gets here, I don't have to direct him. I don't have to tell him what to do. He knows exactly what to do because we have a, a language that we can speak to each other. So it's so much more than just this like seedy underbelly thing. It's, it's a friendship that we've cultivated and I'm... I, Knowing that I'm also helping him, like, you know, be able to put food on the table and have extra money and be supported, that kind of feels good to know that I'm that I'm getting something out of it, but I'm also helping someone survive. That feels really awesome. Yeah, and, you know, what you say is consistent with a lot of the research I've read on sex work in general in terms of people's motivations for, um, you know, paying for services, you know, regardless of their ability status, many people are, they're seeking more than just like that sort of quick physical release, like the um, emotional component, the intimacy, the, uh, stopping it's referred to in the literature as the girlfriend experience, because almost all the literature is based on heterosexual men paying yeah. for female sex workers, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a whole experience oftentimes that people are buying and, you know, I think that totally changes the way that we need to be thinking about sex work is that it's not just about this physical act of sex. Um, there's this whole emotional component. Yeah, this whole other piece to it. And I mean, with my sex worker, and I'll be really blunt, and he and I have talked about it, like, he had to set a boundary because at one point I got super attached and he was like, look, you're awesome. I love spending time with you, but like, we're not in a, this is a, 
a transactional relationship. I, and he, he had to remind me, and that was hard. And I definitely was, it felt like I was being broken up with. But once once we got over that, he was like, I'm not going anywhere. Like, I want to I want to do this with you. I like spending time with you, but I'm not your boyfriend, and I can't be that. I can, I can be your worker. And so that was really valuable for me because it took away all of the, like, lovey feelings you have for that person. It doesn't mean you can't get aroused and enjoy their time, but it really reminds you that, like, oh, this is, this is not, there doesn't need to be romance there. And I think part of the issue with that for me as a disabled person is that, that I never got to experience that, like, youthful, like, oh, I'm 17 and I like a person and we're going to go on dates and we're going to, like, try this. I never got to do that. And I didn't get to do that throughout my 20s either. So I'm 35, 36 now being like, hey, so I want to experience this, but no one else wants to touch me because they're afraid of disability. So... I, you know, unintentionally made these workers out to be this lovely relationship when that's not what it is. And so learning that boundary was really valuable for me to the point now where we can have a relationship with each other that is respectful of each other's time and boundaries, but doesn't have to be overloaded with all this other stuff that's not real. Yeah. Wow, I mean, I'm sorry, you're just giving me research ideas and papers. When are we writing that paper? When are we going <laughs> to let me know already with you? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, uh, you know, this intersection of sex work and disability is is also something where there's almost no research on it. You know, the few papers that I, you know, can think of that I've seen are all about just the sex surrogacy component specifically, and it's teaching people to explore their sexuality for the first time, but not about how you sort of manage and navigate, um, you know, sort of an ongoing relationship like that and some of the challenges that you might feel when you know you start developing feelings but it is that transactional relationship how you set those boundaries effectively like there, there's nothing out there on that and i would love to see uh, a paper on that at some point let's write that paper i'll write that paper <laughs> with you because i mean it is really important and he and i had so many conversations like he sent me a text one day that was like dude you're texting me way too much and it's i can't focus on what i have to do and i have other work and i have other partners and I have other things that I have to do and you're just you're just I need you to take just take a step back and I of course went to oh my god what you're breaking up and he was like we're not I'm not doing that I'm just letting you know that like I can't give you all the things you want all the time and that's not what this is and if you want more of my time I have to charge you more because I'm working with you. So, like, that was a, it was a knock in the head for a minute. But then the next time we had an in-person session, he was like, let's talk about it first. Let's have it. Let's, like, we, and we, so we, we fucked around. And then at the, at the end of that session, he was like, so we probably should talk about this. And so we did. And he goes, he goes, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not leaving you. But, but we need to talk about boundaries in our time. And that was really valuable for me in my everyday life because it taught me, like, if you text somebody 85 times a day, they're not going to want to engage with you. But what that also showed me was that disabled people don't have a lot of outlets. So when they, when somebody gives them that option, what I was feeling was, oh, my God, I'm excited. Like, somebody wants to engage with me. And, yeah, I can just text a lot. So what it means is we need, we need to give people more outlets to explore their their feelings. And not just sex, but what does intimacy feel like? What What is a sexy texting relationship feel like. And I don't think there's any research out, 
out on that yet. So, like, I feel like there's five or six papers we should be writing. <laughs> well, yeah, and also the how do you address this in sex education curricula, right? Because sex education programs are fairly ableist in the way that they oh, approach yeah, sex. Uh, they're pretty heteronormative and all of these other sorts of things. And so how do you help to ensure that sex education programs are meeting the needs of of everyone? And it's just, it's such a shame the way that sexuality is taught primarily throughout the U.S. People aren't getting the information they need. And if you're in any part of a, you know, minority population, like you're just not represented or reflected at all. Um, that's one of the other things I like about the Netherlands and why I teach that study abroad course there is because they take this comprehensive approach to sex education that actually starts in kindergarten and it advances in an age-appropriate way um, throughout people's schooling. And when I say sex ed starts in kindergarten, you know, some people are like, oh my God, like you're teaching kindergartners about fucking, like that's crazy. And it's like, that's not the reality at all. Like, don't. Yeah, that's not all <laughs> what we're doing. Like, no, like you're, you're starting at a young age just teaching people basic communication skills. Touch, consent, yeah, yeah. Like all the things that we don't seem to know how to do as adults. You want to teach them when they're kids. And you teach them the names for the, you know, proper anatomical terms. And then, like, you know, as they get older and, and start to approach puberty and other things, like, the conversations start to change. But it's just, if you have that as your baseline where you've normalized, um, you know, just the names of your body parts and you've taught people basic communication skills, that's going to make your sex life, your relationships, all of that so much easier down the line, and it's going to make it so much easier for parents to have conversations with their kids and to be able to answer questions they might have um, if, if they started that work early on so that they haven't let this anxiety build up for more than a decade before they actually have the conversation. Yeah, and I mean, just quickly thinking about what you were just saying about using, like, using the right language, I think when kids are young with disabilities, if you if you have a disabled child, you should use the language. Like, don't just say, Andrew's in a wheelchair say, you know, Andrew has cerebral palsy and he's a wheelchair user. Like, give the young child the language to describe themselves. Give the young disabled kid the language to be a disabled kid so that they, going out in the world, they have a grounding of, like, I'm a wheelchair user and that's cool or that's okay or, like, that's comfortable. And I think if we did that, disabled kids, whether we're talking about sex or just in the world, would feel supported. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. And it's just, I, I think so much of it is parents and caregivers wanting to err on the side of overprotection again. And I think they're dealing with their own anxieties and insecurities and just being unsure how to approach these issues because they've never been taught themselves. Like, what do you say? How do you say it? What are the terms that we should use? And so, uh, again, that's why it's so important, the work that you do to open up these conversations so that parents actually do talk about it. I mean, it's really, it's really cool that the parent, like, reached out to you after our podcast and was like, hey, I never... Like, that, that warms my heart because it's like, I don't... Like, you know, I do this work and I don't sit here and think... I'm going to change someone's mindset today. I just say my things and hope that it sticks. So, like, so like I'm glad, really glad that a parent thought about that. And if, if 
the parent is listening to this or wants to, like, I can give you the snippet of this part. If you want to reach out to me, parent, I'd love to help you because I think, you know, kids with disabilities need role models, and I want to be that person for kids so or for anybody. So, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I'm, I'm with you in that the most rewarding part of the work that I do is when I hear from people who have learned something and it's changed their life in some way. And that's why I do this work. Uh, you know, it's not for like the, the fame and fortune because you don't really <laughs> no, get rich really, or famous being a yeah. sex researcher. Um, then, yeah, maybe a handful of them do, but that's not really kind of the way this works. Uh, don't go into it for the money. Um, but it, it's when you can actually have that impact on people's lives and, and normalize things for them, help them to have a conversation that they never otherwise would have had, whether it's with their, their children or with a partner or with someone else, a friend or whoever in their life. Um, that's, that's why I do it. That's awesome. Well, this was a great conversation. I had so much fun just kind of shooting this shit with you today, and I hope that I have given you stuff to chew on and think about around, like, ableism and disability. It was so fun for me to do that. How can the people uh, get a hold of your work, and how can they follow you? Well, thank you for having me. I did learn things that I will take with me into my future work, so I appreciate you having me here. And if people want to follow me or my work, my blog is Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com, where I write about the latest sex research a few times per week. You can also uh, find my social media links on there if you want to see what I'm up to when I'm not researching and talking about sex. And uh, you can also find links to my books and... Uh, my own podcast. All right. Well, Dr. Justin Lee Miller, thank you so much for coming on Disability After Dark Day, and we will talk to you very soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks. All right. That was another episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories, a part of the Wheels on the Ground Network. I am really, really happy you came to this one. If you want to follow my work, you can head over to www.drewgerza.com and you can follow me on all my socials at, at Drew Gerza. So Instagram and Twitter at Drew Gerza. You can also follow the podcast at DisAftDarkPod on Twitter. Remember, if you want to be a part of the show, you can email us at disabilityafterdark at gmail.com. Tell us a little bit about your story. Tell us a little bit about why you want to be on the show, and we'd love to have you. The show is, again, no longer just a sex and disability podcast. We want to talk to you about everything. So drop us a line. We'd absolutely love to hear from you. Remember, if you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark and pledge as little as $1 a month or as much as $5 a month or more to keep a bright light shining on these stories. I'm your host, Drew Gerza, your disabled daddy. Thank you so much for listening to this Wheels on the Ground production, and um, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. Bye!